You starting to say all these big words. I'm, I'm starting to take it as disrespect. You never give me a fair shake. HBO need to fire you. You don't know about In life, when you see the red flags, don't overlook them, accept them, embrace them, and use them when thinking about situations and or people. Right? For a long time, Billy Joe's revealed a load of red flags that fans have chosen to ignore. And we, we waited for a moment like this where you couldn't pretend anymore. And Saturday night was that moment where you couldn't pretend anymore. You couldn't ignore those numerous red flags that we were starting to see. You couldn't ignore those Billy Joe performances where people were always trying to make excuses and say it was this, it was that, it was this. The same man who couldn't stop Nick Blackwell, the same man that couldn't stop Spike O'Sullivan, the same man that, I mean, struggled against Akafov. The, this is the same guy who struggled against William Monroe Jr., right? We're, we're building a picture here of a guy who struggles at sub-world level. Well, that's the word, struggles. Because when you're supremely talented, you should be getting people out of there. You shouldn't be getting majority decisions against an Andy Lee if you have aspirations of being one of the pound-for-pound pound greats. But people chose to buy into this, this Billy Joe myth. And, you know, I'm not here to comment on Billy Joe as a person. People already know what that's all about. I'm just here to say as a boxer, he hadn't given the fans anything for them to believe he was world-class. And I don't want to hear the talk about the Lemieux win. I don't, I don't want to hear the talk about it. Because... You know, he's more famous for looking out to space than anything in that fight. He just ran around for, for a few fights, and for a few rounds, sorry. And let's not knock that because that's an element of boxing. But you can't do that against everybody. And that's why he stunk the place out against William Monroe Jr. It's why he stunk the place out against Akavov. It's why he left Frank Warren exasperated as to who the hell have I signed here? Because Billy Joe wasn't that guy who, who craved main event status. Maybe he's making more money outside of boxing than in boxing, where he doesn't need to. But for all the people he's called out, it's been a poor return. We should have already had the Canelo fight a long time ago. And what we can say with absolute certainty now is, it's not Canelo's fault. We still can't talk about people Canelo's ducked. I don't want to hear about Demetrius Andrade because after that Liam Williams performance, he's not relevant to Canelo, if we're being brutally honest. I'd rather put Liam Williams in with Canelo because at least we're going to be entertained. But I say all of that just to a very simple point. Billy's given you guys enough red flags that you should have known what was coming. I did. I absolutely did. So on Saturday, I was lucky enough to bump into 
Maz Masood, Natin Gwenya. So anyone who kind of knows the amateur scene and the, the burgeoning sort of prospect scene will know those two guys. And I was also able to spend time with, I want to say Jackie Lee Price. I always forget her surname, but everyone knows tall Jackie if you're around boxing. So I got to spend time with them. And we got to talk about the Canelo fight. And we all had different views. I'm not going to, you know, no, no point in snitching on who said what, but we all had different views. And one of the things I said in that conversation was this. When it comes to elite level fights, I can only go on what you've done in an elite company. It's completely different. It's completely different when you're under pressure. Your media commitments go up fivefold. You're doing every interview. You're doing this. You're doing that. You're under scrutiny. And I was watching the build up to this fight, realizing that Billy Joe was burning up this energy while Canelo wasn't. Remember, you know, a week ago, people were talking about, can Billy Joe get into Canelo's head? And I was like, this guy's been a pro since he's 15 years old. He was fighting grown men from then. I don't think you get in Canelo's head before the fight. I think you can get into his head during the fight. Mayweather showed that. But before the fight, I don't think you can. Because half the stuff you say he doesn't understand. Although, for can I just say on a side note, Canelo speaking English might be the best thing for boxing in 2021 because this will make him a star now. Now we can understand some of the stuff he says and some of the stuff he means. I'm absolutely buzzing to hear what he's got to say. But I say all of that to say, the build-up to the fight I thought was incredibly bad taste. If they were trying to get in Canelo's head, Bill, Bill paid a heavy price for that. And like I said, it doesn't do anything to sell the fight. You know, the people who love what Billy Joe does are the same sort of people you see at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night and they're spilt Guinness on a white t-shirt and they're there, they're dribbling into their beard and they're leching over women who are leagues above what they're capable of, right? They're the sort of guys who love what Billy Joe does. At school, they had names like, like Gary. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they, they you know the guys... Um, depending on your generation, they had the curtains with the undercut. They might have worn a, a Technics jacket. You know the sort of people. They're the guys who love what Billy Joe does. I don't. It's not boxing for me. It's, how can I describe it? We see Tyson Fury do these things, these mind games. And it's kind of amusing because he doesn't get too offensive but he's offensive enough that you can chuckle and go, no, nah, no, nah, he's within the boundaries, right? And he's built up a whole persona based on this. And fair enough, you build up your persona. It's almost like someone's taken those instructions for how to build that persona and translated them into Japanese and then into Vietnamese and then into Mandarin. And somehow... Whatever was built afterwards has just been glitchy as hell. So it ends up being super offensive, not funny, not endearing. And that's how you end up with Billy Joe's media persona. I'm not saying that's who he is as a person. Because I've heard some amazing stories about Billy Joe. But when it gets to fight week, there's something about him that doesn't quite click. And that's just my opinion. So I, I haven't enjoyed the build-up. When people ask me, I said, I, I can see Canelo stopping him. I said, I can see Canelo hurting him badly. It's what I wanted to happen because I always felt that if this fight ended on points, it gave Billy Joe an out. I wanted a definitive win so we never had to hear him talk about Golovkin or Andred or Charles. I don't 
ever want to hear Billy Joe talking about those guys. Now, he, he can just finish off his career with Callum Smith, John Ryder and Eubank Jr. as far as I'm concerned. I think boxing's a better place with him at that level. But I really want to talk about the fight because I think it's just an interesting story overall. And I always go back to my initial thinking when this fight was made real. And I remember just saying, these unifications are cool if both guys have delivered world-level performances. And what do I mean by that? I look at Ramirez and Josh Taylor. I don't really question either man's record. I'm like, yeah, I get this unification because they're trying to find out who's number one. The Billy Joe Canelo thing felt like Canelo just needed to get the belt. That's what it felt like. I'm just going to get these four belts and then I'll work out what to do afterwards. That's what it felt like. Let me get all four belts and everyone's going to move up to fight me. That's how I'm going to make my money. And Billy Joe was just a step in that direction. And a lot of you boxing fans need to understand the dynamics of these sorts of fights. There's a massive difference between two world-level talents fighting, which is what you can get. So if you saw, I'm trying to think of a, a good example, Joshua Bartzi versus Marcus Brown. Two world-level talents. Are those two world-level operators? No. Because neither man's given us a performance. So in this fight, you had Canelo Alvarez, who's given us numerous world-level performances. Whatever you think of his record, park that to the side. He's given you world-level performances on a massive stage. That's what's made him a rich man. And Billy Joe hasn't. So it's a unification in name only, if that makes sense, because... This isn't a guy you can call the real deal. He doesn't have guys like Durrell on his record. Do you see what I mean? He doesn't have those kinds of names on his record to be considered you know, elite at 168. Just my opinion on this. And that's why, for me, I wasn't overly enthused, but I got where people were coming from when the fight was announced. But then I come back to the economics of the deal. Like If they're really saying Billy Joe's on $3 million for this fight, why wouldn't you just fight in the UK? Like, Billy could make that fighting Eubank Jr. He could make that fighting Callum Smith. You know, why would you do this? Is this chain being yanked? I don't know. But the fight never really made sense apart from the fact that Billy has a belt. I don't think the fight happens if Billy doesn't have a belt because I don't think Canelo likes to do business with people like that. But this is something I found interesting. That why wouldn't you give him a, a domestic dust-up unless they're saving that? for the post-Sky zone deal. And in the build-up, we've heard some absurd things being said about how and why Bill could win. And I get delusion and, and I get all of that, but you know, a lot of people on social media tout themselves as boxing experts and this is why there are two people I deal with in a boxing context. People whose opinion I seek and people whose opinion unfortunately is forced upon me. I ignore the second group, always listen to the first. Because the second group will talk about stuff like mind games. Oh, Bill, Bill's getting in his head. Look at this. The mind games are brilliant. And if you're like that, you're probably the same guy who's got Guinness down his top, dribbling his beard, um, the residue from the dry roasted nuts in the beard and all that sort of stuff. Well done. Have a, have a great life. But here's the thing with mind games. We say they work after they work, if that makes sense, Right? which isn't really a fair sample size. So when people talk about mind games, you talk about Kevin Keegan losing it as Newcastle manager. 
But that Manchester United team was better than the Newcastle team. They were better the year before, they were better for 15 years after. There's no, there's no comparison. Do you see what I mean? And what happened in that season is the quality saw through. They talk about Muhammad Ali and the rope-a-dope. Really? Ali's a better boxer than George Foreman. Stronger? No. Better chin? Maybe. Better boxer? Absolutely. Same with Sonny Liston. Ali was just a better boxer. So when we talk about things like mind games and you're getting in someone's head, you know, Ricky Hatton was getting in Mayweather's head, you found out he wasn't. Mind games are, they're a myth, right? Because at the elite level, you do not get there unless you're mentally strong. You don't get there. Like, you can't. There's, there's too many people that are mentally strong that can get there for, for a blagger and a bullshitter to be getting there. So park this idea of mind games away. Like they tried the same with Fury. Fury got in Klitschko's head. No. At that point in time, Tyson Fury was better than Vladimir Klitschko and posed all the things that Klitschko would hate. And you can see that from all the previous opponents Vladimir had. So park this idea of mind games out. When you look at a fight like this, you only really want to ask two questions. Number one, who's got the best fundamentals? And number two, who can execute those fundamentals at the highest level? Nothing else matters. Not power, not this, not that. If you cannot execute your fundamentals at the highest level, you'll get found out eventually. And that's not me saying Billy got found out. What it's me saying is, he got a reality check. You know, he got that humbling that sometimes in life you need that humbling to just remind you you're a human being. But look, let's talk about the fight because there's so much to love about the occasion. So number one, like the attendance of 73,000. If you're a boxing fan and you see that, what are you saying to yourself? You're saying to yourself, I want to be somewhere like that as soon as possible. Yeah? That's how I felt watching that. I thought I'd quite like to be at the O2. I don't care what seat I have at the O2. Put me in the O2 for a big fight, please. Because it reminded me how much I miss that moment. I miss the, the socializing before the beers, before I miss that energy. Which you could pick up on, even through the screen, you could pick up on the energy. So, you know, let's talk about the things that are great. It's great to have fans back in the arena. Yes, there were some scuffles and some fights, but look, we've been apart from each other for a year. We've got to get used to each other. It's going to be a bit bumpy, but God, I really, really enjoyed seeing the crowd. So that was a massive tick in the box. And kudos to Eddie for putting the event on. Like we can say he works for Canelo, true, but someone's got to fill that arena. And Hearn was a big part of that. So credit to him for doing that. Um, some of his dress sense was a bit ropey. Like there was some, <laughs> I don't know what Canelo's got him <laughs> mandated to wear for press conferences. But some of Hearn's outfits for a 42-year-old man, he's having an absolute shocker. Definitely a midlife crisis, but hey, he put on the event, so big tick in the box for that. I, you know, I know I give Hearn a hard time, but seeing 73,000 people in an arena to watch boxing, that should make us all proud as fans of the sport. So I really enjoyed that. Enjoyed the commentary a little less, though. Like At least Carl Froch gave us his mandatory 10-10 round, so it doesn't matter what platform Carl's on, and I think he's going to the zone, so I think his time with Sky's up. And I don't think... He held his own against Roy Jones, to be honest with you. So I think it's a reminder that American commentators seem to see the sport differently to the Brits. 
when I look at fights of this sort of magnitude, and we're going to call it magnitude because it's a unification, in name only, but it's still a unification, and it was still a question of what can Billy Joe do at this level. So when I see fights of this, of this sort of status and magnitude, I always go back to one high-level question. And it, for me, it was this. Could Billy Joe Saunders reverse the narrative here, the story? Could he, could he be the pressure guy? Could he put Canelo under pressure? And if he put Canelo under pressure, would Canelo break? Or was Canelo's high-level experience and obviously numerous world title wins, were they the factor that was going to ensure that he had seen everything before and he'd know how to apply the right pressure to Billy Joe? And it was hard to tell. So even when I'm watching them touch gloves before the first round and Canelo's looking down and I know people would be tweeting going, oh my God, look, he's looking down, he's scared. And I was sort of like, maybe that's what Canelo does. Maybe he just doesn't like looking. It's never stopped him performing before. So so now at this point, like everyone else, I'm nervous. And I'm watching the first round. And one of the things I really liked was how Canelo wasn't buying any of Billy Joe's feints. Like normally against the, the British guys and the Europeans that Billy fights, they buy everything he does. Yeah. Bill can set traps, he can do this, and that's how he can have his way with people. And Canelo's like, I'm not buying I'm not buying any of these. And so what you saw really quickly, if you go back and watch it, the, within the first 40 seconds of that round, you realize Canelo's got Billy's timing nailed. And I'm like, wow. You know, if you remember his first punch, which I found intriguing, was a left hook to the body. It wasn't a jab. He wasn't really trying to do anything. He threw a left hook to the body. And immediately I thought, okay, Canelo's going to be setting him up for a right hand. If you're throwing that left hook to the body, it's the equivalent of of grabbing someone to push them, right? So if I, if I want to move you to my right-hand side, I'm going to grab you with my left hand and I'm going to push you to my right-hand side. And it was that equivalent of planting that psychological seed in Billy Joe to say, I'm not going to let you go where you want to go. You're going to go that way where I need you to go. And like, I like how he didn't overdo it, but he'd do it every so often like a correction. Whenever Billy was trying to get out to his, to his right-hand side, Canelo would just throw that left hook and go, no, 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 no. This door's closed for you. I need you to go the other way. And I thought that was really clever psychological priming by Canelo. But there were a lot of things that sort of defined the first quarter of that fight. And that happened in the first round. And you could see what Canelo was trying to do. It was more around timing. I don't think Canelo came in to be the combination puncher here. I think he came and said, Billy Joe loves to be a counterpuncher. What if I'm the counterpuncher tonight? How will Billy Joe cope having to be on the front foot? Can he be aggressive? And if he is aggressive, he's going to give me openings that I can take and I trust my power. That seemed to be the, the opening gambit from Canelo. Right? If you remember that first round, he threw a double jab and just thudded shots into the body. And so once you start to see that, you're like, okay, so he could do this. He could also counter, which he did with that, that right uppercut that he threw in the first round. And he tested a few things that came into play later on. And meanwhile, Bill hasn't really come back with anything. And it's hard because Canelo's got the, the two hands up. You know, he's having a look. He's having a feel like he normally does, which is good. And so Bill wins that first round. And you're like, mm, okay. Okay. We still don't know anything more than we knew three minutes ago. But mm, okay. And then in the second round, it's almost like Canelo was like, I've made my decision. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to find out what this guy can throw back at me. So, 
as you're watching the fight, you're watching Billy Joe and Billy Joe's rapid with the jab. But there was something really interesting in, in the relative hand positions of Canelo and Billy Joe. If you notice, Billy Joe kept his lead hand sort of halfway between his face and the opponent's target, right? Whereas Canelo kept his hands close. Kept his hands closed. There were no tells. He wasn't giving any clues away about what he was going to do. And I found that really interesting how even with a high guard, Canelo could remain relatively fluid. Whereas Billy was just firing off that jab and stepping. And he was, he was burning a lot of energy. Now, I don't know if the altitude training would have given him the 12-round stamina. But we also know that Bill fades halfway. So I say that again. Billy Joe fades half in the second half of a fight. Like, we've seen it numerous times. Against people who are challenging enough, he'll have a difficult second half of the fight. He will. And so in that second round, you start to see Canelo put that pressure on, really start digging the shots. The left hook became a factor. It seems to be a Reynoso shot because Ryan Garcia threw one of those on Luke Campbell. You know, I'd like to know the science behind it, but it looks effective, especially against Southport, at saying, you're not going that way. And anytime you try and go that way, you might get hurt. So I thought that was, you know, like I said, from the first round, that priming was good. But Canelo started to stamp his authority at this point, doing what he wanted, when he wanted, and letting Billy Joe know he was the man in that ring. And there was very little Billy Joe could do because he hasn't had to face a challenge at that level before. Probably not since his days in the amateurs has he been in with someone who might be a level or two above him. You know, you start to see the, the, the slips and the rolls, and Canelo's now breaking out the box of tricks to say that, to Billy Joe, well, I can do anything you want to do. So where are you at now? Meanwhile, he's hurting him with thudding shots. Those shots he was taking did not feel pleasant. So you go into round two and round three, and it's a similar pattern of Canelo stamping his authority and saying, do you know what? Yeah, I've got this. And then in round four, I, th I thought there was an interesting psychological shift where Canelo's gone from, I'm going to outbox this guy to, I think I can stop Billy Joe Saunders. So he went from being the combination puncher, you know, slipping and rolling, punching with Billy Joe. He, he parked all of that to the side for a bit. And he just said, right, let me try and hurt this guy. Really hurt him. And so you start to see a lot more of that in, in round four. It probably started in round three, but round four, he was really trying to pin Billy Joe to the ropes and let rip. And in that fourth round, that was the first time we saw the thunderous right uppercut. The one that I think reminded Billy Joe that, yeah, you're in a fight. And I think that was the shot that Canelo had gambled would stop Billy Joe. And remember, at this point, there'd been no sign that Billy Joe had a suspect chin or anything like that, or that he could be hurt. And to be fair, we know the result of the fight. So that Billy Joe hit the canvas at any point. But Canelo knew at this point he could hurt him. And I thought that was really interesting that now you're like, oh, I can really hurt this guy. Okay, cool. I've got this fight under control is kind of the message that he was projecting at that point. But I think in fights, there's this really interesting inflection point that never really gets talked about, but you notice it when you know what you're looking for. When boxers change their whole posture and their whole look. So, for example, if you look at Billy Joe in the beginning, it was very much, you know, structured, all behind the jab, move around, move around, move around. And that wasn't working against Canelo. And it's almost like he called an audible and said, right, I know what my coach has told me to do, but I want to do something different here. And I don't know if it was premeditated, but it looked like a sign of frustration. So now Billy Joe's gone back to the Billy Joe we know. Low hands, pick someone off, and almost just 
Boxing on instinct. Now, when I see that, that tells me the composure's gone. That tells me now you're, you're digging into that overdraft of experience. You're digging into that overdraft of tough times. And this is in round four and round five. And I'm like, God, you've got seven rounds where you're going to have to be digging deep. So even if you do get close to Canelo in this fight, you're definitely not going to have anything left for the rematch. Meanwhile, Canelo's not surrendering any composure. If you remember, he's just there stepping forward every time, slipping when he needs to, jabbing when he needs to, countering when he needs to. He's, he's calm and he's controlled in that he doesn't look under any distress. So by the midway point in the fight, after round six, if someone said to me, how would you have scored it? Four rounds to two? I'd give Bill round one. I'd give Bill round five. After that, I thought Canelo just controlled what was going on in that ring. I don't think Billy was really an, an active voice in the contest. I thought Canelo was just saying, look, I'm going to do what I need to do until I can really turn it up on him. And it would have been easy to get seduced by the DAZN commentary, by the way, because all of a sudden they just stopped talking about Canelo. It was just all about what Billy was doing. And they were giving Billy Joe credit for simply landing in a unification fight, he was getting credit for landing, not for any kind of tactical nows, not for any grit, any bravery, any power, just for connecting. And for all the people who say, yeah, but you've got to give someone around for connecting more, you don't get rewarded for being busy. You get reward for winning the round. That means everything you did contributed to you winning that round. That's where you positioned yourself. That's how hard you hit, not just how many times you hit and how you're able to defend yourself. All of that has to be rewarded. And that's why I had it forward too. And I'm like, this is a mountain to climb for Billy Joe because he's not known as a strong finisher either. But as this fight's progressing, come on guys, let's be honest, right? Whatever you want to think about Canelo, whatever you want to think about Billy Joe, you're watching this fight going, there's a golfing class between these guys. It's a golfing class that seemingly the, the commentary guys didn't want to acknowledge because they were so, con they were so obsessed with one-upping each other, right? So it ended up being this idea that somehow Billy Joe was in the lead. I don't know who had Billy Joe 3-2 up after 5, but that was a disgraceful scorecard. And, you know, people say boxing is about opinions, but that doesn't accord with what was happening in that ring. By the end of round 7, you're saying this is an easy night. For Canelo. At any point, Canelo could just turn it up, and I'm not sure what state Billy Joe would be in. Right? At the end of that seventh, I was like, ah. that's how I felt. I genuinely felt right. End of that seventh, it's 5 2, comfortably 5 2. Canelo's going to see this one out. Probably a 116, 114 with Canelo coasting at the end, is what it felt like. And then the uppercut happened in round eight. And that's all she wrote, I guess. That was the, the fight ending punch. And we can talk about what happened in the corner afterwards. But one thing you have to say before you even judge Billy Joe, Billy Joe Saunders was he still found a way to survive and carry on. Right? That's a fighter's instinct. He was like, let me get to the end of the round. That's not a guy looking for a way out. Now, whether he quit on his stool or not, I have no idea. No one has any idea. I gave Kel Brook the benefit of the doubt twice. I gave Dubois the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give Billy Joe the benefit of the doubt. I just don't believe you get that far in boxing and quit. 
I just don't believe that's the case. But we've got to talk about this word quit. It, I think a couple of guys used it. Ellie Secback used it in, in his content. And I think it might have been someone like a Michael Woods. Is it Mike Coppinger? One of those guys also used it. And in boxing, it's a really loaded term. And you have to understand where it comes from. In a room full of boxers, you don't want to be known as the one with the weakest heart, right? That's why in a room full of boxers, they'll always talk about, now you've got to carry me out of my shield. That's boxers talking to boxers. Because, like I said, you don't want to be the weakest guy in that room or the weakest woman in that room. You don't want to. You want to say, no, 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 no. If I'm going out, man, I'm telling you now, they're going to have to carry me out. Right? Because it's, it's the whole dick swinging contest aspect of it, isn't it? If you're going to do that, yeah. Now, what's happened over the years is that language and that discussion has leaked out into the mainstream boxing world. So it's become axiomatic that boxers cannot quit. But if you ask any boxer, mate, you're about to lose your sight. Are you going to go out for one more round? No, they're not. They're not. In their sensible moments, they know they're not. And as fans, you shouldn't expect them to because you have to remember you're asking a boxer to risk his life and his health for a bunch of people who don't know him. As a fan, you're asking a boxer, theoretically, to put the burden of care on his family who haven't asked for any of this, just to please you. Just so you can tweet about it, just so you can talk to your mates in the pub about it. You've got to have a word with yourself sometimes, right? And go, why would I be asking someone to do that? Your only expectation as a fan is to go, I want this guy to go as far as is reasonable. And when it becomes unsafe to do so, don't do it. And there'll be guys like Gabe Rosada who will tell you, I boxed on with a, with a fractured eye socket. It was just luck that he's still around to box and he can still see. That's luck. That's not bravado that's not designed in new way with his fractures that's more luck yeah that's luck the minute you believe it's down to your heart that you're perfectly fine and capable of carrying on you're deluded and you're an idiot in mark tibbs's position i'd have pulled billy out it was never going to be a fight he was going to win and all that was going to happen over time was Canelo was going to peck away at it. If you remember that eighth round, as soon as Canelo landed that shot, he threw both arms in the air because he felt that in his knuckles. And he's like, oh, no, I've really hurt this guy. Like, I've broken something. Because for the rest of that round, he was just like, I'm just having fun now. If you remember, he was just having fun in the ring. And he's like, oh, let me just tap him there. Let me throw a straight right. Let me just tap, touch that eye again. Ooh, ooh, you're feeling that, aren't you? And you've got Mark Tibbs in the corner seeing this and understanding what it means. So fair play, look. That's not quitting. For me, quitting is literally you're taking body shots and stuff and you're just like, I can't do this anymore. And that's okay if you never box after that, fine. It happens. But to say Billy Joe quit, to say Dubois quit, no. And to say that a boxer can never quit even if he's hurt or a boxer can never be saved from that ego and that fan pressure is cruel. 
It's not even cruel. No one else is held to that standard. It's not sensible, it's not rational, it's ridiculous. So for me, how that fight ended, I'm okay with it. I think it still humbles Billy Joe and it says to Billy Joe, look, you got to wind it in. Like, we don't want to hear that nonsense anymore. We don't want to see crackheads slapping people anymore. You might want to just go back, reflect and go, maybe I need to come back as a different person because you're never going to be able to talk tough again because people will use that now. Billy Joe knows that. It becomes a point of weakness. And that's not his fault. That's just a damning indictment on where we are as a society. You're going to encourage people to risk their lives for a bunch of strangers, essentially. Defies all logic for me. It does. And that discussion takes away from what was a pretty compelling ending by Canelo, because that's a hell of a shot to, to mess someone up like that. And if you remember that, he threw that uppercut so relaxed. Like he, he, it's, like, it's like he knew where the head was going to be, and he just popped it out. Relaxation, just pop. And as soon as he threw it, he knew. I don't know if he heard something. I don't know, but he knew. And then in his head, you can imagine he's just there going, I just got to see out the next few rounds. I'm going to keep hitting him there. And if Canelo had tried to make him quit, that might be a different discussion that we'd be having today. But for your corner to save you for another day, nah, they did their job. Like, I have no issue with that. But the problem Billy Joe has, and I don't necessarily want to blame him 100%, 97.2 maybe, but you also have to throw accountability to these platforms like IFL, uh, Behind the Gloves and so forth, who encourage sort of clickbaity type comments. And the thing is, someone like Billy Joe is notorious for just biting on that. Like, like, like he bit on the Canelo feints, he'll bite on any opportunity to create something clickbaity, right? And so he paints himself into these corners, which are then hard to rescue him from because he's, a, he's almost like the master of his own downfall. You know, just prime example. I, I, was not sh- I was not shocked, but, you know, you don't... Fighters go out on that you get in that ring people know what it's like to walk and walk in that ring and you know who fights and know what it takes to get inside them ropes i'm never going to criticize a man if he was seriously injured or whatever has he done but you know get carried out the ring brother get carried out the ring see that's dangerous talk now in the right context i understand where bill's coming from like you can sit there you can have billy joe saunders Eubank Sr., I don't know, what other boxer could you have in there? Nigel Ben and so forth. And they'd have that conversation over a whiskey or something, right? And they'd all understand each other. They'd know deep down, look, if I've broken my arm, I've got to be pulled out. But it's that thing of you shouldn't be looking for the way out. Someone should have to save you from your situation. So I get that, but it almost painted him into a corner where it was like, okay, Billy Joe Saunders, what can you do now? You see what I mean? And it, it's given a, an opportunity for his enemies to jump in on him. Wow. You know, and your enemies will always have a field day on things like that because they remember what you were saying. They remember how tough you were talking. 
and you know boxing's cruel like that. <laughs> what a wet man! Give me the ten grand, baby. Give me the ten grand. Hey, grab that, Louis. Nice one. <laughs> And so here's the problem. You, it's like this vicious cycle. You get so ridiculed for allegedly quitting that it puts even more pressure on you to risk your life in the ring. You know, and no one's asking the question of how come there's so many eye socket injuries recently? I'd love to, I'd love to map the use in society of performance-enhancing drugs and the instances of serious injuries like this. I think there's a positive correlation. I don't think it's an accident that as people have doped more, the nature of the injuries boxers suffer increasing. And that's not to say that these weren't happening before. I just don't think they were happening at the same frequency. Does that mean we need bigger gloves? Does that mean we need to pad the gloves more? I don't know. But we're seeing a lot of orbital socket injuries. And, you know, just to come back to that point where people are saying so-and-so carried on, you have to remember, human skulls are roughly the same density, right? Roughly. Like, even me at 107 kilos, my skull's probably the same density as uh, whoever, who, you listening to this right now, we've got the same density. But in a boxing context, that same density is taking a greater force of punch at heavyweight than it is at bantamweight. So yeah, you can fracture your eye socket at bantamweight, but you're not absorbing the forces that these other guys are. So when people laughed at Dubois, remember, he tried to carry on with that thing. Until those heavy hands from Joyce were like, you know what, mate, you might actually crack your skull in half here. So you have to be really, really, really careful in how you position this notion of quitting. I think you should give your best. And I don't think you should look for the first way out. No, by all means, of course not. But that's life. That's not just boxing. But don't risk your life and your health for a bunch of strangers. That doesn't make any sense to me. And I hope we move away from that discussion. And as much as Eubank Jr. will enjoy the, the 10 grand bet, I hope he's never in a position where he's risking his life just so he can say he stayed consistent to his principle. Because Gerald McClellan did, and that didn't end well for him. And we want fewer of those instances as we go forward. But on a happy note, look, I thought that was a hell of an event yesterday. I thought that was the first statement that says boxing is back. So kudos to DAZN, um, Canelo Alvarez's operation, Eddie Hearn, and everyone that made that a really good operation. Like Matchroom, they did their thing. I don't necessarily think this is a convincing argument that they're going to create high quality content because I think some of the camera angles are wrong. I think some of the commentary was poor. There's a lot of things that were poor, but you got 73,000 people into an arena. You're winning at this thing called sports. So kudos to them for doing that. Um, let's see what's next. They're talking about a Joshua Fury announcement next week. Yeah, maybe, whatever. And someone's got to tell us who gave Fury the black eye. But look, I'm going to sign off now. So enjoy your day. And remember, if you enjoy this, like it, share it, introduce a new friend to the movement. And take care, guys. <laughs>